This is my reaction and analysis to the new video from Dave Rubin, The Rubin Report. Jordan Peterson, Eric Weinstein, and Dave Rubin live. Mr. Reagan. So this is a party in which I was not invited, sadly. I am not, in fact, a part of the intellectual dark web as much as I would like to be. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a law degree. I don't have quite the following on YouTube that these guys have. One day. Maybe one day. So that's why I have to do these videos about their videos. All right, so this this was a super long live stream, but uh, I watched it so you don't have to. This could be retitled... Eric Weinstein monologues for two hours while Jordan Peterson interjects a few times and Dave Rubin sits there. Now, Eric Weinstein apparently coined the term intellectual dark web. I did not know that. This guy is ugly as dirt. He is a difficult person to look at. He, he, does, he comes across as a super arrogant SOB. This guy's what I, what I call an intellectual bully. He likes to get his opinion known. He likes to educate people. He does not like to listen. I tend to find that this is true of like ugly people with super high IQ because they hypervalue their intellect above everything else. You know, they're trying to make up for their obvious aesthetic shortcomings. So, you know, they hypervalue IQ and they totally undervalue other things like athleticism, physical fitness, looks, these sorts of things. Sort of the quintessential movie villain, right? Sort of the Jabba the Hutt type figure. Jabba the Hutt was like an intellectually superior type alien creature, and that's why Luke Skywalker couldn't use his Jedi mind trick on him. He had this kind of haughty arrogance about him. I'm so smart, nobody can defeat me. But he was utterly repugnant in like literally every other sense. This guy seems to be somewhere along that. That's a horrible... I'm a mean person. <laughs> so he's not only unpleasant to look at, he's got an incredibly unpleasant disposition. A great example of this is how often he tends to interrupt Jordan Peterson and the extremely low level of tolerance he has for being interrupted himself. He interrupts Jordan Peterson almost every time Jordan Peterson speaks, and any time Jordan Peterson tries to interject, he will not be interrupted but he is, he is perfectly comfortable interrupting somebody else. That's a pretty strong sign of a narcissist, somebody who really doesn't respect other people, but has a great deal of respect for themselves. He takes himself very seriously. There's a moment when Jordan Peterson makes a joke, and you can see that Eric Weinstein is processing this. Like, did he just make fun of me? Did he just insult me? I, 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 I don't, how do I react to this? How do I react to this? Should I be? He's like borderline going into confrontation mode. Dave Rubin starts laughing hysterically at the joke, which triggers Eric Weinstein into, into laughing himself because I think he then recognizes, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, this is, not, this is not an attack on me. I'm okay. I think I'm okay, right? And that trigger comes from, I think, a lifetime of bullying, which is terrible, which is unfortunate for him, but it does create certain social problems that he you know, obviously then has, which makes him less pleasant to listen to than somebody like Jordan Peterson. I don't think this guy is ever going to become a media celebrity. He just doesn't have the disposition for it. He's got a lack of humility. He's got a lack of charisma. And he is a very hard to look at. But some of what he says is brilliant. So let's dig in. Winning isn't necessarily the way we should view this or what winning actually is. So I thought that would be a good place to, to kick us off. Here. Well, it's, uh, it's more what winning actually is. There's a political divide. Americans have been voting 50% Republican and 50% Democrat for four elections, pretty much split right down the middle. And there can't be any final victory by one side over the other because everyone has to live together. So the victory is how can we continue to live together peacefully and productively? And we have to figure out the pathway forward to that. I think this is absolutely right. Uh, Norm MacDonald tweeted the other day, The idiot sees the world as good versus evil. 
The cynic sees the world as evil versus evil. The truth that nobody seems to see is that the world is, and always has been, a battle of good versus good. It's, it's, it's such a brilliant thing to say, because I, I would say most of us sees the world as good versus evil, right? Uh, including myself a lot of the time. I do think that there is evil in the world, but from the perspective of the evil person, they're also fighting the same battle, good versus evil, right? Because they have their perspective of what is good, and they obviously think they're good. Do you think Hitler thought he was evil? No. Hitler thought he was a good guy, all right? It was obviously almost everything he did was pure evil. But he thought he was good. So what he's saying here is that people who think they're good are fighting against people who they think are evil. But those people are people who think they're good and who are fighting against people who they think are evil. So in essence, it's people who think they're good against people who think they're good. That's almost all the battles in the world, right? Including politics. This is why it's important to treat your enemies with respect. Or, as Christ put it, love thine enemy. Good old, good old uh, Norm MacDonald, such a genius. You have a fascinating phenomenon which people who are willing to accept lower financial payment and security, uh, job security, but higher psychic payment stemming from the idea that they are crusading. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you need to do is you need to pay people more if you're unhappy with them. And this, I think, mm -hmm. I learned I've about... i thought that about professors, actually, that well, if professor... sociology professors had their salaries tripled, they'd be a lot less radically... I learned this from the New Orleans <laughs> Police Department, where at some point they had uh, corruption, where people were ordering uh, mob-style hits over police radio. And I think what happened was that the new police chief came in, and he said the first thing he did was raise salaries. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that you have to have skin in the game. You need to give people something to defend. And so it's very important to pay the people that we are decrying all the time yes, more so money. Yes, so we could say um, everybody who's listening should go online and donate to Quillette's Patreon page. Yeah, Quillette's doing great work. Reason. Quillette is doing great work. But I'm saying that we should, we should try to figure out how to get Vox more money as well. Mm -hmm. And we should try to figure out how to get Slate and Salon and all of these things so that you can afford to pay people in ways in which they don't have to take a large portion of their payment as psychic gratification mm -hmm. from having felled imaginary dragons. Pay journalists more so they'll start telling the truth. I'm not sure I agree with that. What he's saying basically is like, these journalists aren't getting paid enough to tell the truth. So they're subsidizing their income with the satisfaction of feeling like they've done some kind of social good. I don't think that paying them more disincentivizes them from trying to do good socially. I don't think that kind of positive reinforcement, because where is the connection, right? I mean, they're not being rewarded for telling the truth. They're just being paid more generally, right? Like, if you went up to journalists who were specifically telling the truth, and you paid them more, and you went up to journalists who were, who were lying, and you paid them less, then you would have a clear association, right? People would know why they're getting paid well and why they're getting paid less. Just to start paying them more and to expect that they're going to start telling the truth is irrationally optimistic. And I, I don't even think this is an optimistic guy. I think he's kind of a cynical guy. So I think he's, he's cherry-picking those things in which to be optimistic about. I'll tell you what, send money to my Patreon and I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, one of the things that was really interesting to watch in Vancouver, I just had two discussions with Sam Harris, and the, the discussion was set up from a promotional perspective by a promoter um, who was doing his job as a kind of a combat situation, right? There was going to be a victory. It would be Sam or me in, in the final analysis. But what happened was that 
Sam and I actually had a discussion where we were trying to lay out our points to understand each other's points. And we set this up. It was one of Brett's ideas, actually, because Brett, your, your brother, mo uh, moderated. When the second discussion opened, what he had us do was summarize each other's arguments. So I put forth Sam's arguments in the strongest possible terms. Steel man. And he did the same. And yeah. that, worked, that worked just fine, by the way. But what was so interesting was the audience would have um, settled for a debate that culminated in the victory of one of us over the other. But instead, what happened was they got engaged in a discussion that we had both designed to push both of our capabilities of thinking farther along. And then the original format was we were going to talk for an hour for the first one, and then we were going to open it up to Q&A. But the discussion got very intense, and I, would have, I likened it to an approximate level of a pretty good PhD defense. You know, if, if, you're, if you have a good student who's, who's defending and you know they know the literature, you can really go after them because it gives them a chance to show their mastery, right? So right. it can be a real positive thing for them. And so it was like a dual PhD defense, D-U-A-L and D-U-E-L at the <laughs> same time. But the audience was right there with us. Right. And then at the end of the hour, Brett asked them, should we switch to the Q&A or should we continue the discussion? Because we're in the middle of something. And overwhelmingly, the yep. sentiment was continue the discussion. What we were doing was actually engaging in the process of trying to make both of us smarter than we were. And, and people are, are in for that. They're, they're, they're on board for that. Mm -hmm. And they would, they would prefer that to the cheap victory by all yeah. appearances. All right, here we get a little teaser for the great debate, right? You know, the funny thing is, He's just framing this debate as if it's like if it was like an open exchange of ideas between he and Sam Harris, and it was constructive, and they came to some conclusions, and it was very um, it was very productive, and it was very good and positive, and there was no conflict. I suspect that Jordan Peterson is kind of being nice to Sam Harris, and I haven't seen the debate. I can't tell you exactly what happened. But I did see a guy do a live stream after the debate talking about what he saw. And this was a Sam Harris guy, right? I think he was like a strong atheist, and he, he, and he kind of doesn't really like Jordan Peterson. He, he seemed to lament how prepared Jordan Peterson was. Like, he seemed kind of like, I wasn't expecting Jordan Peterson to be quite that prepared for the debate. What that tells me is, this guy went in thinking that his guy was going to do better than Jordan Peterson, and he, he was disappointed. So it, it, it occurs to me when we do see the debate, I don't know, you know what we're going to, I'm obviously going to do a reaction to the debate, but what I'm expecting to see is Jordan Peterson kind of controlling the debate and Sam Harris having to, to kind of acquiesce to certain points. You know, I think Jordan Peterson finds the idea of kind of like destroying somebody or owning somebody to be unproductive in society. I do think that he recognizes the value in that kind of thing as a way of gaining fans and gaining popularity and getting people on his side, sort of what happened with the Kathy Newman thing. But in the long term, it's better to be respectful of your enemies so that they're not afraid to accept your ideas. Um, and in that way, I 100% agree with him. I'm, I'm very, very much the same way when I debate people. I, I, in real life, if I'm in an argument with somebody, I will try to be as respectful as I can so I don't turn them off to the idea of considering my ideas, right? Um, I'm going to consider their ideas. I want them to be respectful of my ideas. And so I'm going to be as respectful and kind as I can, despite the fact that I might think everything they're saying is absurd and silly. 
Jordan Peterson has the same philosophy, and he employs it as strictly as he can. Just sometimes when you're very, very right about something, and somebody else is very, very wrong about something, and it's, and it's, and it's very obviously apparent to everyone watching. I mean, you can't help but destroy somebody. We had this problem for uh, in English for inflected inflection for marital status, which was true for females and not males. Mister was Mister, but Miss and Misses gave you more information. So there was a one-time backwards incompatible change that got made with Ms. I think it was a good idea uh, to, make, to give women um, the equality that they deserved and shouldn't have to ask for. Okay. If you wanted to actually do the pronoun thing for English, would you start with trans or would you start with intersex? Now, if you started with intersex, everyone is intellectually sympathetic with intersex. There are people whose gender or whose sex is ambiguous. In general, yeah. no matter how conservative somebody is, if I tell them there's a person born with ambiguous genitalia, there's compassion. Okay, you'd make the change based on intersex. You'd make a one-time backwards incompatible change to the language. And then trans would have what it wanted. That's how you do it. And if you wanted it to win, that's how you'd you, you, you push it through. I disagree. I disagree with this because of the incredibly small percentage of intersex people in the world. I mean, it's, first of all, we already know that it's not intersex people that are campaigning for this. We know it's trans people. So this, this trick of saying, well, it's just for intersex people, nobody really is going to fall for that. All right. So damage has already been done there. Two, intersex is too small of a population for us to consider giving them their own titles. And most intersex people choose a gender anyway. So the very, very small percentage of people who are intersex and haven't chosen a gender is so infinitesimal that the vast majority of us will never even meet somebody like that within our lifetimes. Uh, the third problem I have with this is he, he, keeps, he keeps saying one-time change. Why does he think it's going to be a one-time change? Why does he think that there's never going to be any other time when they say, actually, we want a different pronoun? Or why, is, why does he think that no other group is then going to accept that as a precedent and try to repeat that and try to champion for their own words that we got to use for them? I mean, it's bad enough in the world as it is. We've got so many people championing their own, like, you know, labels for everything. Oh, I got to be labeled this. I got to be labeled that. It's like getting to the point where, you know, every individual person needs a specific label for them. You know, we could actually do that. We could call it, like, um, their names or something like that. We could do that. You know, but seriously, though, if we treat people like an individual, like people on the right tend to encourage people to do, and we stop grouping everybody into these, into the, into these opposing factions, you know, maybe we don't have to worry about that stuff so much. You know, treat people as an individual. Let's get rid of the oppression Olympics. Let's get rid of the hierarchy of oppression, the hierarchy of privilege and all this kind of stuff. Come on, leftists. You used to say this during the civil rights movement. Let's say it again. Come on. Be with me. The content of one's character not the color of one's skin, right? Right? Come on, come on, come on. Come to the right. If you think about one phrase that sums up the theory of communism, what would you, what would you say? What the most famous phrase? Well, probably from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Now look at the first part of that phrase. From each according to their ability. Right, so the mm -hmm. idea is that there are different abilities acknowledged in the very right. core of communism. <laughs> this right. is beyond that. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Right? This is genius. This is probably the best thing he said through this entire video. The sort of intellectual um, elite in the universities have this private way of talking amongst themselves in journals, and then this public way of talking. And this is absolutely 
um, essential in some areas, but it's being abused in others. So, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. the trade theorists um, know that what they talk about, about the importance of free trade based on Ricardian equivalence and comparative advantage, uh, is a bullshit argument. Um, it, it's a very crude thing that's very hard to argue with mathematically. But it, behind the scenes, they're having a completely different conversation. And they have the idea of, we're entitled to do this. This is an interesting point. I, I do think that the internet is solving this problem. Um, basically, if you have anyone in any field who's willing to speak honestly with the public about, about the stuff that, that the experts are talking about, the public loves that, right? They, they then become valued in our society above the other people in that field. It's like, okay, if you want to keep secrets about your about what you're studying, that's fine, but we have no interest in listening to you. I, I feel like the general public finds that offensive when, when the information we get from experts is controlled. They want us to think a certain way, right? This is why it was so controversial when the, when the emails from East Anglia came out that were basically saying like, okay, we have certain data that's, um, that's coming in that we think that um, you know, climate change deniers can use to you know, use against us. So let's not disseminate this to the public. Let's keep that part secret and let's um, provide only the data that we want them to see so that it reinforces our, our ideas of what we want people to think. You know, maybe they're right about everything, but um, if you are controlling the information that the public gets we're, and we find out about that, we're going to be extremely suspicious of you. Not only will you be dismissed and we won't listen to you, but your credibility is utterly destroyed. Your career should be over if you're the kind of person that does that sort of thing. I think the internet has really changed the game. The public wants to know stuff. The experts who are willing to share that have a platform. And so now this problem is, I think, resolving itself. We on the left had an idea that if we could get rid of cultural bias in IQ testing, if we could get rid of misogyny that was structural in the workplace, that we would get a particular kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. And we did make things better in many ways, mm -hmm. but it didn't go as far as we were expecting. Mm -hmm. And so this is what people are wrestling with. And you know, I hesitate to call it this, but I think it's the most powerful way of saying it. It's the great oppression shortage of 2018. The great oppression shortage of 2018. <laughs> Genius. If you look at what predicts success in workplaces, generally what predicts is IQ and conscientiousness. Agreeableness is a very trivial predictor. Now, one of the things you do see is that agreeable people tend to get paid less for the same work. But we don't know why that is exactly. We don't know if they don't bargain as well. I think that's the simplest explanation, is that they're, 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 it's easier to take advantage of agreeable people. It's almost like the definition of agreeable. It's the downside of being agreeable. But agreeableness is not a very good predictor of workplace success. There's actually a corrupt literature that's associated with this because there's a whole literature on emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence puts you ahead in the workplace. It's like, no, it doesn't. Emotional intelligence is almost in, indiscriminable from trait agreeableness. And trait agreeableness actually puts you behind in the, especially in the managerial domain. But there isn't much evidence that, that agreeableness is a, is a major contributor to workplace success in general. When, when we had our first child, we had a, rot uh, a, a practice where there was a rotation of the OBGYN who'd deliver. We had this one woman who we were totally on the same page with. We loved her. Everything about her was fantastic. We were, we were simpatico. And my wife's labor went on and on and on and on. We 
supposedly we were getting closer and closer. Finally, she, this woman couldn't take it anymore, and she said, i got to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And the guy that we dreaded, the six-foot-four mm. guy with the bow tie who came from a totally different era, we called him the Undertaker, mm -hmm. comes in and he says, she's completely blown uh, where we are in the process. You're barely dilated at all. We, we need to deliver this child immediately via cesarean. Mm -hmm. It's like, huh? What? Right. Well, this son of a bitch saved the situation for my for my my wife and my daughter. Yep. And yep. the idea is I didn't like him one. Bit. Absolutely, man. That right? happens. And that the, guy wo was... the woman who diagnosed our daughter with, with uh, arthritis, same yeah. thing. I was really mad at her. Really mad at her. She was very disagreeable. And she was right. And let's yeah. let's be very clear. Compassion and right are not the same well, this thing. Is the thing. This is kinda how I feel about Eric Weinstein. I can hardly tolerate to watch him. I can hardly tolerate to listen to him but he has some incredibly valuable ideas. The thing that nobody gets about what we're doing, because I spend my time attacking uh, most of the things I'm trying to save. Um, I want to save the New York Times from itself. I want to save the university. How old are you? 52. No, you don't have enough time left to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a baby boomer, my friend. He might know Kurzweil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this guy has zero sense of humor about himself. Uh, this is like a typical New Yorker type reaction. You know, you've insulted me. I've got to get you back. So he's got this sort of like weak comeback. This is a great example of this guy's unpleasant disposition, right? Not, not impressed with this. Is this, is this a political movement? Is this the beginnings of a political movement? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think what it is, is the, it's the conducting of proper political discourse. I don't know. Are constitutional principles in the political domain? Uh -huh. I would say no, they're outside the political domain because they're axioms. So they're inside some other domain. They're inside a philosophical domain or a theological domain. And I think a discussion that's associated with proper political process isn't a political discussion. I think it's a meta-political discussion. So it would be... Awesome. I have learned painfully that I have more in common with what would now be considered center-right than I do with radical left. Yeah. This guy seems to have a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? He, he considers himself, I think, to be, to be hyper-rational, but he also considers himself left-wing, and he seems to have affixed himself to that, to that group, right? He is a leftist. And so I think he tends to look for ways in which the left is correct. This is like a psychological block that stops him from embracing the right fully. I think it's also possible that he is an atheist. And strong atheists do tend to consider right-wing ideas to be based in Christian philosophy. And that could also stop people from really embracing right-wing ideas. Yeah, I think there are certain, kind, certain truths about reality that a person is unable to fully accept if one utterly rejects the idea of religion. That's just because I think the nature of reality is, um, is one in which divinity is a real thing. And so if you can't accept that, you're never going to really accept the way reality is fully. I do think it's a strong bias. I do think it's irrational. And I do think it hurts him personally. But they were, they were conservative. But at the same time, they were actually listening to what I was saying and they were receptive to it. And so then when I go to the talk to the leftist types, it's like that... that they're ideologically possessed, let's say, in the same manner, but they're not open at all. Okay, but, but I experience something slightly different. I, I see exactly this. I am more welcome in center-right circles than I am 
in even center-left circles because of the contamination has gotten much farther from, from the extreme into the center yeah. on the left. Yeah. But there's still this other thing. Like, you know, I hear the word libtard. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, for Christ's sake, really? And, you know, in your comment section, there is much more of this stuff than I'm used to in, in other people's comment sections. Yeah, there's something comment about, sections are nuts. No, 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 mm -hmm. but I'm saying something about your audience. Yeah. That somewhere in your evolution... Um, you have to watch the fact that there is this increase in the incivility on the right. Libtard, this is, he's got a problem with libtard. This is a perfect example of irrational bias on his part. This is what we call a false equivalency, right? It's a kind of, it's a very clear example of a logical fallacy, actually. So you have a lack of civility in all camps, right? Just go to Parliament in, in the UK. It's crazy uncivil. Look at the Berkeley campus when Milo Yiannopoulos went to speak, right? Complete lack of civility. Maxine Waters' rhetoric, completely uncivil. Milo Yiannopoulos getting kicked out of a, out of a restaurant. Sarah Huckabee Sanders getting kicked out of a restaurant. Pretty much any Black Lives Matter group. The lack of civility on the left is extreme. This guy's criticizing the right for saying libtard? a term that's reserved pretty much exclusively for the comment section in YouTube videos, the contrast between the severity is absurd. For somebody who, who seems to take great pains to appear to be hyper-rational, this is an absurd assertion. I mean, it's face value absurdity. You know, okay, you're claiming the left is uncivil? What about libtard? What about people on the right who use the term libtard? That's, that's hurtful. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, some people on the right are uncivil. I'm sorry that they called you a libtard. Uh, it's a weird... Anyway, whatever. Actually, this is funny, because this is actually the most severe attack that he has on the right throughout these, you know, both of these videos. It's like, you guys use the word libtard. Okay, yeah, we're horrible people. I think, you know, before I ever met you, I had this shtick about the world uncle shortage mm -hmm. and that fundamentally we needed a class of uncles and also aunts who aren't exactly parents to put a cigar in your mouth and a single malt in, in, in your hand and say, listen, kid, this is how the world actually works. Mm -hmm. Get the hell out there and master it. Yeah, don't, don't, don't you bucko me. But the, the key <laughs> issue is, is that I think you became the one-man answer to the world uncle shortage. That is apt. Now we're done with video one, we're going to video two. Right. Weinstein is obviously incredibly intelligent. He's obviously faced a lot of bullying in his life. Um, so he, he, he values his intellect above everything else, and he values intellect in others above everything else. I, I don't really like that. I, I think that people who are like that, I consider to be intellectual bullies. He seems like an emotionally driven hyper-rational person, which is kind of a weird thing, right? Because you think, okay, a hyper-rational person should be driven by, by reason or by intellect, not, not by emotion. But, you know, the things that shape us as children are often very, very, very hard to get over, right? So this guy, this guy has, I believe, made um, an absolutely concrete association between himself and being a leftist, right? He has dyed in the wool leftist. It appears that he's, because he wants to consider himself to be hyper-rational, he has accepted and embraced a lot of things that the right keep, keep arguing, but he still remains on the left, which 
you know, which is like forcing him to try to construct rational arguments as to why leftist thinking is correct. I do think he kind of puts the cart before the horse in this way, where he's like, leftism is who I am. That's what I believe in. Therefore, I have to find ways in which the world proves that leftist thinking is correct. But he's so smart, he kind of seems to be convincing in a lot of ways. But it's good to put him up against somebody like Jordan Peterson, because you can kind of tell that he's not giving us his full thinking on certain ideas because he knows Jordan Peterson will probably tear him to bits. So he's presenting to us the most rational things, and he's kind of keeping out you know, his liberal biases. I, I would love it if he would just go full on, right? If he would say all the things he really thinks... And it's a really it's a, it's a real shame because we could see a real clash of ideas if he was if he was a little bit more honest. But I, I think that he's I think that he's scared of looking foolish, right? Because he I don't think that he's used to conversing with people with the intellect of Jordan Peterson. So it's dangerous. It's dangerous to then present ideas that you know are going to conflict with somebody like that because you can lose, right? And you can look foolish. Yeah, it's a shame. I wish you would have gone all out, but you know, what can you, what can you do? On to video number two. You, you're going to smack around Mar tonight or what? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think that it'll probably be pretty, pretty cordial. They don't say his full name, so it's not clear who they're talking about, but they're talking about Bill Marr. I mean, I think that Marr is secretly one of us. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I think that Marr is tired of the. I mean, his show was called Politically Incorrect. I mean, I think that he is tired of the identity politics. I think he's tired of the intersectional nonsense. I think that he wants to have some open conversations. Uh, I just think that he is he's tied politically to the left. So I'll be interested to see how much of that he he goes after. You know, how much Trump talk there is, which I find utterly uninteresting, mm-hmm. is the truth, mm-hmm. uh, and how much of it will be about kind of broader issues of. Of freedom of speech and uh, and civility and having decent conversations. Because I think that he's on the right side of those issues. I mean, I've, I've played him on my show, right? And I disagree with him on everything politically. But I played clips of him on my show, specifically on those issues, and him cracking the whip on people on the identity politics nonsense. And I think we're on the same page there. Well, if he wants to be an, an effective advocate for the left, he should lead the march in dissociating the moderate left from the radical, unreasonable left. What Jordan Peterson says here is exactly what I've been saying forever. Someone's got to do it because the strategy that they're abiding by right now is pretty damn self-destructive. And he's in a good position to do that. And I think he's motivated to do it because he is a free speech guy being a comedian and everything. I don't, I don't think that Bill Maher will ever be fully reasonable because Bill Maher is anti-Christian. Being anti-Christian is fundamentally irrational, right? There's a bunch of us who are not interested in the stupidest version of the argument. Right. So if, if, yeah. if I want to hear an, a, a pro-choice argument, I want to hear the most sophisticated version of the pro-choice argument and then see if I make an argument against that. I don't want the simplistic version of the pro-choice mm-hmm. argument just so I can knock down the simplistic version of the pro-choice argument. Yes, on. it makes for a great Ben Shapiro Destroys video. Right. But, it's, <laughs> but it's more fun for me. Like, personally, I really much more enjoy engaging with the best ideas that somebody else has to offer than engaging with the, the worst ideas that you can pick out of a hat on Twitter. That's really This is exactly what I've been trying to do on my channel. I try to find the core of the best ideas, and I try to express those ideas as clearly as I possibly can to my audience. Well, it's a a variant of of your position. It's like, I want to hear the best versions of the arguments that run counter to mine, because I'd like to figure out where I'm wrong, and I'd like to make what I'm doing better. And that's more important to me. It is literally more important to me than making sure that what I already know is right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm confident in what I know, but I also know that I could do a better job of expressing it, that it could be, it could be 
the system could be more dynamic, it could take more, think more things into account. Like, I've got plenty to learn. And a real discussion with someone who objects to you, that's where you learn. So, so I think more power to that. This is my position exactly. I would say that I think there's a pretty easy test, which is when someone catches you out on a part of the argument that you've made, that you, that you know was flawed, and someone catches you out, do you smile or do you get angry? Right? I think mm. It really is almost that easy because the, the truth is that there is something fun about the idea of having to rethink your position and something adventurous about the idea that you haven't thought everything through, that there are these new vistas of thought that maybe you haven't considered before, and it does hone you. It makes you better at it. And it, it also allows you to, uh, listen, life is funny, and it's funny that we're flawed human beings and that our logic is flawed. So there's mm -hmm. a certain humor mm -hmm. to the idea that somebody is exposing uh, a rift in your thinking that you now have to deal with. It, it's, well, it, we, it we, makes life fun. If you, if, if you were just a stone all the time, it would be really boring. This is the correct way of responding to a debate defeat. Sadly, most people on the right and the left react emotionally to to being proven wrong about something. But one should not react emotionally. One should just one should just accept that they're wrong, change their way of thinking and move on. But rising above that emotion is very difficult, but it's incredibly valuable if you can do it. I think there is a concept of good diversity and bad diversity which is not understood in the general population. Um, Good diversity is when you have a, a collection of people with different ideas and, and they're somehow complementing each other and checking each other and people are backing down and seeing things that they wouldn't have seen because you're walking around the elephant from all the different sides and seeing all the different components. Bad diversity is something like two people grow up in different countries. One, one drives on the left side of the road, one drives on the right side of the road. And the idea is that you decide that uh, everybody should be able to drive on the same side of the road that they grew up on. And so instead of everybody getting to a really interesting panel, uh, you get a lot of auto accidents and nothing really interesting happens. Good diversity versus bad diversity. This is an interesting way of expressing this idea. People on the right have expressed this for a while. I, I, I think the first time I heard it was from Steven Crowder. The way people on the right usually express it is ethnic diversity versus diversity of thought. But I like that. Good, good diversity versus bad diversity. I, like, I might use that. There was a phase change in the economy around 1970 that I cannot get people to focus on. And, you know, if you look at, like, GDP, which is a very flawed measure, and median male income, which Tyler Cohen, I think, was the one who pointed out that this is the best version of the argument, they're, they're both going up together until, like, 1970. Yeah. And then one of them flatlines yeah, and then yeah. it keeps going. To be clear, GDP continued to grow while median male income stagnated. And the idea that this is not a structural change that is in every school textbook and that we don't understand that we've built up two plus generations of experts lying. So well, what's the lie? Well, take a law firm. The idea is you have some number of partners. The partners have associates. All the associates want to become mm -hmm. partners. So you have to tell them a story about if you work hard, you will become partners. But when you hit steady state, like the professors, the professor wants to have 20 students, the 20 students want to become professors to have 20 students. None of this stuff works anymore. But the income so ability hidden, levels... Your thing, it, it's, it's a hidden, uh, what do you a, call that game? It's a hidden pyramid scheme. Pyramid, Ponzi, it's a hidden pyramid, pyramid, hidden pyramid it, scheme. Okay, so what he's saying here is that there was too much supply in terms of human resources and not enough demand in terms of there weren't enough high-paying jobs for that enormous workforce to fill. So what he thinks happens is that we still have this mentality from like the 50s where companies tend to promise enormous career growth, but they don't actually have the capacity to fulfill the promises that they're making to all their employees. And the reason people tend to believe this is because in society, we have a cultural expectation 
that if you get a job in a great company and you do really, really well, that you will be rewarded with unlimited possibilities. But, and that was true in like the 50s, but that's not true anymore. And so Weinstein is basically saying that corporations use that cultural expectation to essentially encourage people to work for lower wages than, than what they're worth. And the additional value that they're adding to that is an expectation that will never be fulfilled. The question is, what do we do in the face of that reality in our society currently? I do right. wonder if, you know, on the individual level, I think that you know, that's, you're right, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of chaos and volatility in the system. And, but I, I think that the only thing that you can say to that is the same thing that, that's been true for most of human history, okay? The, the, the time when people could actually stably predict that in 30 years I will be significantly better off than I am now and I can make a retirement plan, that's about 50 years of human mm -hmm. history. And so, the, so this, this dream that we had right. from 1940 to 1970, uh, even if I accept I love the this. premises, uh, I'm not sure that that's a realistic dream about that's, what that human beings did. Yeah, so we can't control the situation around us, but we can control our reactions to the situation. The lack of just basic virtue in the position that I am worse off because my neighbor is better off, even though I have more stuff than I did five years mm -hmm. ago, uh, the lack of inculcation of any sense of what I would call basic morality but is having a significant impact. Shapiro's response here is beautiful. You know, maybe our prospects aren't as good as they used to be. Maybe we have to work, you know, twice, three times, ten times as hard as people did in the 1950s to get ahead. Uh, what do you do in the face of that reality? Do you sit here and say, well, that's not fair? Or do you just recognize you have a more limited number of opportunities, accept it, and regardless of your circumstances continue to be a good person. I love that. The economic opportunities today aren't as good as they were yesterday. Okay, so what do you do? So you can either make a radical change, or you can make incremental changes, or you can make no changes. What are the benefits and costs of these, of these choices? Well, if you make a radical change, there is the possibility you will cause unforeseen detriment to the entire system. Now, if you, if you, if you make incremental changes, then you can maybe get closer to where you wanna go, but you might also push you further from where you want to go. You've got to be very knowledgeable about what you're doing, and you have to really be sure about every change you make. This is Jordan Peterson's assertion most of the time. If you hold steadfast and you make no changes, you allow for the possibility of that prosperity to emerge once again if conditions manifest once again to produce it. So let's imagine that uh, a rising tide does lift all boats, and that's actually happening, but we're purchasing at that at the price of a certain degree of predictability and stability into the future. That seems quite clear. And that's exaggerated by this incredibly rapid rate of technological change. It's like, okay, so how do we tolerate all that uncertainty, given that we're also deriving substantial benefit from it? We don't want to mess it up. And what I've been suggesting to my audiences is, get your act together as much as you possibly can because the way that you deal with uncertainty is by being prepared for anything and everything that's going to come your way. That, and so you want to put yourself together so that when the difficult decisions come along, even though we can't predict what they are, you're going to be in the best possible there's solution. There's a new message to... here. Here, Jordan qualifies Ben's, Ben Shapiro's earlier statement. I think this is great. Spot on as usual. But you know, we, we only have about 10 minutes okay. left because you got a hard okay. out. So I thought we, we'd do a little self-therapy while we're here. So I want to ask you each one thing. I'll even answer it myself. And then we can all sort of comment. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start there. Um, if you had one blind spot, what do you think it might be? I, I've asked you guys some version of all of this before. Um, but you know, a lot changes over the time that we keep doing this. But if there was something that you thought was your 
personal blind spot, what would it be? Well, I would say, I don't know if I can identify a specific blind spot, but I could say in general, you know, I know perfectly well that I don't know enough about a lot of the things that I need to know about to make the sorts of arguments that I'm making. Like, I'm painfully aware, and increasingly aware, I would say, of, of just how much I don't know, how much more I need to be reading and concentrating on to flesh out what I have to say. Like, the, I don't know. I don't know in, enough about economics, barely anything. I don't know a lot about history, barely anything. And so I'm more and more aware of how much I don't know. And this is actually a very cool thing to do. I love that he asks them this. Jordan Peterson's reaction is kind of funny. I'm too uneducated about all the things I want to talk about. I love that. It's like basically he's like one of the most educated people most of us have ever seen talk about, you know, a huge myriad of subjects. It's frustrating when you want to talk about a lot of things and you recognize I'm not as educated as I need to be on this to speak intelligently about it or with authority about it. Yeah, I can imagine that's a huge frustration for him because a lot of people rely on him and he needs to be as accurate as possible. But it's funny, you know, the more we know about things, the more aware we become of what we don't know. For me, the constant struggle is... I find myself more stressed out now than I was two years ago when no one gave a crap what I thought, right? I mean, that's, that's, so, so the fact is that I, it's, you know, living a, a, a less stressful life in the middle of believing that people actually care what you think, it means you have to take your stuff much more seriously. That's not, not really a blind spot as much as a concern. Uh, and I think that that means that, you know, just the, the commitment to, to hearing more about things is, is deeply necessary. But it also means that it just means that your, your life in many ways is more miserable the more people know about you. Uh, <laughs> ben Shapiro says that he, you know, he worries about what he says. Um, and, and he worries about people's perception of him. You know, Donald Trump has a great cure for this. It's called not giving a f <laughs> So, I mean, despite the fact that Ben Shapiro doesn't really love Trump that much, he could take a note from the Donald Trump playbook. Just the other day, it was yesterday actually, I did the Adam Carolla podcast and I was about to say something very politically incorrect and I obviously don't have a problem doing that generally, especially when I'm doing comedy. And just for a moment, I had you sort of ring in my head about be careful about your words and I was mm -hmm. like, ah. You're constantly saying, am I curbing myself because I'm afraid or am I curbing myself because it's the right thing to do to curb myself here? I think right, if I you're concerned that it's because of fear, then you might want to take the risk of saying it. <laughs> you know, because I've, I've, I've tried to wrestle with that problem mm -hmm. is like, you know, or maybe am I avoiding this because I think it's bad or because I don't want to take on the responsibility. If you have suspicions about that, then you should do it. Because I, I think you should, I should think you should arm yourself against your weaknesses mm -hmm. and take that risk. I think it's better developmentally to do that. This is a great point. Jordan Peterson's basically saying, don't ever censor yourself unless you're absolutely sure that you should censor yourself. You know, it's better to express a bad idea than to censor it for a silly, selfish reason, right? Because if you start to do that, then you will inevitably start to censor yourself when you have good ideas too. You should censor yourself as little as you possibly can, I think. Uh, but there are reasons to censor yourself. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to say things that are, I mean, I think most of these people, most of the people in the intellectual dark web, um, certainly myself, I, I never intend to actually hurt anybody. I think that probably Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, a lot of these guys are the same. So if your intention is pure, if you genuinely are trying to help people or you know, improve people's lives or improve their mood even, um, if you occasionally say something that is like, you know, that people find offensive or they don't like, I mean, that's fine. That's always going to be a risk when you express yourself ever. Blind spot. 
I think that I do a terrible job of um, when somebody's making a bad analytic argument but has intuited their way to the right conclusion, I tend to discount them as mm. if the analytic argument was how, how they should be thinking. So different kinds of minds um, who have their variables, you know, if you, if you think nothing of Myers-Briggs, it should at least tell you that there are kinds of minds that aren't working at all like yours. Big Five might be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So that's been a huge uh, blind spot. Weinstein's answer to this question is fascinating because he seems to be aware of his own intellectual arrogance. Uh, but it's not clear if he checks himself or if he indulges in it, right? He may do both. He may sometimes say, okay, i got to check myself. I can't be so intellectually arrogant. I can't be such a bully. But other times he might just say, you know what? I'm going to you know, throw my intellectual weight around. And I don't know. It's not clear. It's not clear what he does. I don't know, I, I don't know if he does anything. I don't know him well enough to, to make a judgment on that. I think that one of the things that I'm most worried about is that um, fighting the supposedly empathic army of people trying to destroy conversation itself has had a very negative impact on my empathy for exactly the people that they want me to have empathy mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. This is actually a major cause of red-pilling. It might be fun at some point um, to conjure up a panel where some of the people that are in this group take the leftist position and defend it. In, in every possible mm -hmm. way, you know, right from the postmodern conclusions, which, you know, I think are, are worthy of substantial skepticism, to the, to the notion of the reality of the dispossessed and the, and the presence of systemic oppression and all of that, and to, and to make the cases as, as, as brutally as we possibly can. Well, I think that would tactics. be useful. This is a fascinating idea. Because it doesn't seem like we've been able to have the debate with anybody who can carry the debate. That is hilarious. <laughs> Basically, Jordan Peterson saying that there isn't enough intellectual integrity on the left for the right to have a debate with them. <laughs> for the right to have a productive debate with them. Like, if we're going to argue leftist ideas, people on the right have to step into the shoes of a leftist and argue their ideas in in a dispassionate way in order to come to any kind of resolution between the right and the left, right? Because then they're going to be a little bit more intellectually honest. <laughs> that's such like that's such a hardcore dig on the left, but presented in in like you know, presented in such a benign manner, but like really, really hardcore. Like I would almost say offensive. I mean that, whew, that was like a that was like a a gut punch to the left. That was crazy. Um, I love that. That's like the last thing he says in in these in in this live stream. Uh, all right. All in all, this was an exhausting thing to watch and to you know report about and to analyze. I suspected people wanted a breakdown of this, so I made it. If you want to contribute to my Patreon, that would be wonderful. I can grow my channel, um, make better videos. If you like this video, hit the like button. If you want to see more videos like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, I'm sorry. I'm not yet part of the intellectual dark web. It's not my fault, okay? I don't have a PhD, all right? I don't have a law degree. I'm not accepted by these people. Maybe, maybe if I get like a million subscribers, they'll include me in their secret society. Good night. Another articulate spokesman defines liberalism as meeting the material needs of the masses through the full power of centralized government.
This was the very thing the founding fathers sought to minimize. A government can't control the economy without controlling people. And they know when a government sets out to do that, it must use force and coercion to achieve its purpose.